Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and once again, we're welcoming the man who sees all sides of all issues, Isaac Saul from Tangle. Isaac, welcome back. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure. Well, I was tempted to to play for you the clip of RFK Jr. talking about <laughs> Jews, but on, I, man. we used that on Tuesday, so... Uh, I'll spare you if people want yeah, to listen to that. You. We I talked about it. that the other day. Yeah. But let's start with this ethics bill moving its way through the Senate uh, around Supreme Court ethics, which is a hot topic you've written about many times. What's in this piece of legislation? So there, there's a bill now moving through the Senate that I believe there will be a vote for on Thursday, which I think is when this episode will be coming out. Uh, it's sponsored by Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, the Democrat from Rhode Island. And the crux of the bill is that, you know, they want to try and create some more transparency and accountability within the Supreme Court, which for a lot of reasons I think is a good thing. The kind of controversy around it is how they plan to do that. So the the big stuff in the bill is that it is asking the Supreme Court, giving it 180 days basically to adopt and publish a code of conduct. In this code of conduct, there's going to be a mechanism for the public to submit ethics complaints. And any of those ethics complaints will then be reviewed by what they describe as kind of like a randomly selected panel of lower court judges. The bill also calls for a three-judge panel that would review motions for recusal. And there's some language in there that kind of expands financial disclosures and the ways in which the justices will be expected to, you know, share what kinds of financial gifts and travel and vacations, the kinds of things that have been at the center of some of the controversy that's come up recently. So it's a pretty expansive bill. It's not the only Supreme Court ethics bill we've gotten. Actually, a couple of months ago, Senator Angus King and Senator Lisa Murkowski proposed their own bill, which was much less far-reaching. It was basically a bill that would require the Supreme Court to come up with their own code of ethics and publish it. Uh, but this is a pretty, I mean, if this bill were to pass, which it almost certainly will not because of the Republican opposition, it would be a pretty major piece of legislation in terms of what it requires of the justices. And, you know, and I share a political assessment. It's hard to imagine the House passing this. Given that, what made you decide to write about this? Is, is it your sense that, well, Democrats could easily take back the House in a year and they could pass it then? Is it because this conversation could force the Supreme Court or nudge them along to adopt their own ethics rules? Like, What do you find interesting about this? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think there is always something in politics that is a little bit of trying to move the Overton window. I think Senator Chuck Schumer, the majority leader in the Senate, and you know all the leadership in both the House and the Senate understand that this bill is almost certainly not going to become law, but they also know that there's something really simple and, and popular about this, which is the Supreme Court should have a really clear code of ethics, a code of conduct, and they should be really transparent about what kinds of gifts and money and donations and and travel and those sorts of things that they get. Any any you know potential impropriety or financial conflicts of interest or anything that comes before the court, I think you know all Americans are are interested in that kind of transparency. So I think it's a 
political winner, honestly. I think it's a really easy bill to sell to the public in a lot of ways. And I think ultimately they want some sort of movement here so they can say that they sort of pushed the Supreme Court to take some action on this issue. And I think it's totally possible that out of this comes a much less far-reaching, more compromise bill that's sort of a request for the Supreme Court to publish its own specific code of conduct or, or ethics code. So that, in my mind, is probably the goal. You know, I can't say definitively without being in the minds of some of the the senators who are outspokenly supporting this bill. And, you know, the reason I think it's worth writing about and interesting is because, like I said, I think a lot of Americans are interested in this issue now. Obviously, we've gotten all this, you know, this ProPublica series, which is all about wealthy billionaires like Harlan Crow and the money or gifts or travel that they've participated in with justices on the Supreme Court, specifically Clarence Thomas. And then also Samuel Alito has had some stories of his own. Just last week, we got a story about Justice Sonia Sotomayor and her sort of prodding universities and other places where she was speaking to to buy her book. Her staff was apparently doing that. So there's all this dirt being kicked up about it and people seem to really care. The stories are getting a lot of traction. And so I think, you know, Democrats are seeing a moment to sort of grasp that political momentum. And it's clear that, you know, publicly it's a story people are really interested in. Yeah, I agree. I think I think Democrats, in a way, want to run against the court because in the midterms they had success, almost running as opposition, and because of the Dobbs ruling. Now, I think that a lot of the decisions that the Supreme Court handed down this cycle were not as unpopular as Democrats seem to believe they are. Like affirmative action, student loans. Like, I actually think the public is not where the Democrats think they are on some of those issues. But I think by and large, putting the court on the defensive, hitching the Republican Party to this court, reminding people about Dobbs, and painting a picture of an unaccountable body that have lifetime tenure and don't want to police themselves, I think is, is a political winner for them. I agree. From your perspective, because you wrote about like just Supreme Court ethics generally, something we've covered a lot. What should be the line here? Because I think when you look at Thomas in particular, and actually Alito in particular, that one to me, I think is the most instructive because he took this gift, didn't disclose it. His explanation of it to me didn't pass muster. And he seemed very defensive about it. And this was a person who wound up having business before the court. And so much of the discussion went to, well, Obviously, he's not corrupted, which I think we can never know, by the way. Like, of course, I have no special reason to think he was, but the avoiding the appearance of impropriety for the most powerful legal body in the country should be of utmost importance. And they're also like the standard bearers, right? Like they should be the people who who are so above the fray that nobody could even question their ethics and so that they could serve as a model for the lower courts who have more stringent ethics rules. From your perspective, like what's the problem we're trying to solve here? There is this sort of squishy thing that I think needs to be acknowledged, which is that part of the thing we're trying to solve for is public opinion, which is a weird thing to consider with the Supreme Court. But, you know, it's an institution whose authority relies in part on trust in it. And that's something we've always had. And I think you know, there, on the one hand, there's a really strong argument from the right, which is 
the Supreme Court is ruling in ways that Democrats are upset about, and they'd never be on this crusade if the court was a 6-3 liberal majority. And this is all about kind of constraining the court in some ways, which I think there's some validity to that. I think at the root of this is some upset about how the court has ruled. But the other side of that is like having a country who believes in the legitimacy of the court is actually also really important. And to your point, the best way to sort of preserve that legitimacy is to create a system or to have a system where everybody feels like they can trust that the justices on the bench are acting in good faith without corruption and without bias pushed by something like, you know, if some billionaire is paying for their like adopted son's school tuition or whatever it is, which is, you know, like a story that we had about Clarence Thomas and his grandnephew who he, you know, refers to as like his adopted son who apparently had part of his school tuition paid for by like a, a billionaire donor. Now, to your point again, the distinction between some of what happened with Justice Thomas and some of what happened to Samuel Alito is Harlan Crow never actually got before the Supreme Court. He never had like a business interest that showed up and actually made it to the court. They turned down a petition that he was kind of loosely tied to. And the real question is, you know, what do we do? What kind, what kinds of lines can we draw when somebody who has this relationship with a justice has interest before the court? And to me, there are like something that's really simple that we could do is just make a very, very clear guideline that says if a justice has had, you know, XYZ relationship with somebody, whether that's accepting travel or going on vacations or having something paid for, then there needs to be this period of time where they're not allowed to rule on a case that involves that person. Unfortunately, we we don't have that. I mean, we have these ethics codes that exist in different places among federal judges across the government that the Supreme Court justices say that they're abiding by, but they don't have their own specific binding code and they're self-policing, you know, on recusals, which I think is maybe the only way it can happen, but it's a lot easier to be squishy on the the self-policing when there is no like really clear code that you're abiding by. So it's sort of an intersection of a lot of different issues, but I think fundamentally we want a court that the public has faith in. And we're seeing, you know, through polling that the trust in the court, though, it has actually interestingly come up a little bit in the last couple of months. It's generally historically quite low right now. And I think that's a pretty dangerous place for the country to be in. Think about this in terms of like, there's the question of narrow interest before the court, right? Like, do you have a case before the Supreme Court? What what Sheldon Whitehouse said of Crow was, he said his business is the court. And I don't know enough about Harlan Crow, but I think the standard being, well, there are people out there who don't necessarily have, you know, a business that's going to have a case or, uh, or might not be plaintiffs or defendants themselves or respondents and petitioners. But they have like an agenda and they may be like, all right, I'm a billionaire and I want less regulation or I'm a billionaire and I want more climate regulation. And they can buy access to members of the court, even if it's not to make money or not, they just could have a general interest, right? And I think we should be careful to guard against that as well. The and the ethics rules, I think, should account for that. And we we do that in Congress. We do that in other, you know, governmental bodies. Certainly when I worked in the federal government, if, if a billionaire started paying me while I worked for the State Department, there also is 
a question of foreign interference that is always a consideration and I would have to disclose anything, any money anybody gave me. But the other part of this conversation is whether Congress even has authority here. What's your sense of what the of whether Congress is overstepping the separation of powers? Yeah. So, you know, in my piece that we published on this today, I said that I thought the left and the right were each getting a couple of things wrong about this specific issue. And when it came to the left, you know, like I said, I think one of the things that got wrong is that this court has been kind of taken over by this like MAGA agenda, which I, you know, I, I don't think is totally true. I think this court's been a lot less predictable maybe than people thought. And one of the big things I think the right got wrong is that there is no congressional authority here and no role for Congress to play in, you know, how the Supreme Court handles its ethics issues internally, which I think is self-evidently not true. I mean, Congress plays a pretty significant role in a lot of ways the court handles itself. I mean, Congress drafted the oath that many justices take when they're seated. Congress has determined what kind of financial disclosures justices have to make. Congress basically has, you know, the final say in who gets to sit on the court. You know, they're all Senate confirmed. There are a lot of different ways that Congress plays a role in how the Supreme Court acts. They are a co-equal branch of the government. That, that means they it's true they don't have authority over the court, but that doesn't mean they can't pass bills that, you know, have an impact on how the court actually functions or what sorts of standards it has to live up to. So in that regard, I think that's a pretty weak argument that people on the right are making. I, I think that, you know, the fundamentally Congress doesn't just have a role to play here. They have a duty to play here if they think that the court is stepping out of bounds. I mean, they are the representative body for the people. And in that respect, they're responding to public sentiment here that there is actually, even if it's predominantly coming from the left, there are serious concerns about ethical standards on the court. And so they can ask the Supreme Court to create this certain code of conduct. The place that it gets like a little bit dangerous is if you start to create mechanisms for Congress to kind of impact directly who is ruling on what cases. So part of what I didn't really love about this proposal from Sheldon Whitehouse is that it involves inviting in these other lower court judges who might help determine when recusals should happen or might help determine when an ethical violation has happened, which introduces a whole other layer of conflicts of interest because there's this relationship between lower court judges and Supreme Court justices that they're interacting all the time. I mean, cases are being sent up and back and being rejected and approved. And, you know, I mean, you have more legal understanding and experience than I do. So you could probably speak to this in a you know, more cogently than I can. I'd actually be curious what you think about it. But that to me seems like a really big problem too. If like we have circuit judges who are determining when ethical violations at the Supreme Court are happening or determining when Supreme Court justices should be recusing themselves, they're suddenly under a tremendous amount of public pressure to like thin the court, quote unquote, rather than pack the court in, in ways that make me really uncomfortable and that I think could create a whole other host of issues that we don't want to deal with. So, you know, I don't know the perfect solution. Yeah, I don't think there ever will be a perfect solution. One thing I would consider is maybe senior judges. Like there are all these judges throughout the federal court system who are semi-retired. They rule on cases now and then, and they seem to be less partisan often because they were confirmed a long time ago. They have less incentive because they're not looking for any new role. So they don't, they're not playing any particular part. Those are the people I would potentially look to. And I would almost 
creative mechanism where um, there's like a some kind of balance to who gets chosen to do that kind of work. But it's tricky. And I think honestly, like I blame the Supreme Court for putting everybody in this position. Like they should be stronger on their own ethics so that we wouldn't be having this conversation. Something that you said in your piece, you know, which is it doesn't matter who does it as long as it gets done. And I, I'm with you on that. And and in the Supreme Court's ideal situation, Roberts would be stronger on this stuff. And he he would actually push some very transparent, obvious reforms. And I also think that this question of the separation of powers is a little dangerous for the Supreme Court itself because it goes both ways, right? We talk about Congress, whether it's Congress has power to act on the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court itself historically has had to fight for its own legitimacy. You know, Marbury versus Madison, like the idea that the Supreme Court even says what the law is and that's enforceable was something that that was controversial for a period of time. And now it's something that we take for granted, but in a world where every norm and, you know, norms, laws, things that we previously thought were sacred seem to be falling every single day. It's not insane to think about a world where people start questioning the legitimacy of the Supreme Court to even say what the law is and enforce it. Because like relies on the executive branch and Congress to enforce the very decisions that they often rule in holding accountable those other branches. So if that accountability starts coming back the other way and they bristle at it, there could be a standoff. To be clear, 100%, I don't want to let Chief Justice Roberts and the court off the hook here. I think fundamentally, the best solution is that they publish their own code of conduct and then they respect it and live by it. I mean, to me, that's the cleanest answer to this. But the fact that they're not doing it creates this set of other issues where Congress feels it's the need to act and then it kind of snowballs out of control. So, you know, my best case scenario would be that the court comes out with really clear guidelines for when recusals should happen and a little bit more robust disclosures on the financial side that include these kind of like vacation gift, luxury items type genre of things that they're receiving because i think it's really important that as you know a citizenry we know when those things are happening and and when it's relevant to cases that the justices are seeing speaking of the supreme court let's talk about this case 303 creative llc versus elanis which is a colorado case uh, that was decided uh just recently at the end of the the court's term uh let's take a step back uh tell us what, to your knowledge, this is a very, very strange case for reasons that will become obvious in a second. Tell us like what what was the issue here? Basically, I guess the 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 rough outline of the case is that there's a woman whose name is Lori Smith, who is appears to be a very devout Christian who is a website designer. And she is basically challenging a Colorado law that prohibits businesses from discriminating against LGBTQ customers. And she's, it's called a public accommodation law. And she's, she's challenging that law by essentially saying that being forced to create a website for a same sex wedding would violate her right to freedom of speech because 
what she does when she's creating a website is sort of this act of expression. It's an act of speech. And if she were to be forced to create a website that was essentially endorsing a same-sex wedding or advertising a same-sex wedding, she'd be, you know, have compelled speech that kind of undercuts her, her religious views that a wedding is between one man and one woman. The complication of the case, you know, that all that <laughs> yeah. is kind of straightforward. Yeah. But the complication of the case is that there is no wedding website that she's been asked to create. There does not appear to be a same-sex couple who has asked her to create a website. She essentially invented this challenge by saying that she wanted to start this business. And when she started the business, she had this idea of posting a notice on her website that said she would not be creating custom websites for same-sex couples. And she wanted to know whether that would get her in trouble. So my view on the case basically starts and stops there, which is I, I don't think that this case should have been heard by the Supreme Court because there was no real live dispute. There's like this whole kind of footnote here, which is that they did in their filings in court actually claim that there was a same-sex couple who had made this request. But we've gotten some reporting since then that strongly suggests that you know the, the plaintiff basically invented the same-sex couple and that they don't actually exist, which we found out because some reporters contacted the purported person who turned out to be a straight man and didn't know why his name was in this court case. So it's a really, really bizarre case. And the Supreme Court basically ruled in her favor. And I don't think it's totally clear what the long-term impact of this ruling is going to be. But they said, you know, that she had a right to refuse to serve gay couples a custom wedding website, which you know, might open the door to a lot of other potential discrimination. And and I think there's a really interesting free speech versus religious rights, you know, uh, fight here. If everything that they invented in this case yeah. were real, it would be a really <laughs> it's fascinating a great, case. It's a great, it reads like a great novel because it is, yeah. it is one. Actually. It's a great fictional story here. And, and and like I have no doubt that there there could eventually easily be the real life version of this. I am perplexed by the court's decision to take this case. And I think it does not paint them in a great light. I think it makes the court look ideological. It looks like they were searching for this case because the court doesn't issue advisory opinions. It used to be, it used to play an advisory role more. Like presidents used to be able to call up the Supreme Court and be like, hey, I'm issuing this law. What do you think? Kind of right. They almost were like the attorney general at various points in history. That is not the way the court operates right now. And they, there's a concept called standing and standing dictates that there has to be a, a wrong to be righted <laughs> in this case and actual people who have been wronged. And in this case, as you've pointed out, this, this business, like there is a person who wanted to start a business that made up potentially, allegedly, the, the customers at issue here. So this is a, nothing had happened yet. That is strange. I think the free speech part of this is interesting. And I think it's certainly like the court got what it wanted, was it, which is the ability to talk about the sort of First Amendment overlaps in, when the, in these super complicated cases here, where from what I can understand in this case, there's a couple of issues of fact that, that are relevant to the issues of law, which once again makes this particularly frustrating because the issues of fact 
don't exist. So you, you, could, you could just make up your own facts. So like, for example, one thing that the court seemed to wrestle with is, is this a template that you're just selling or is this a custom website? Because if it's a template, then it's a standard service that you are denying, you're denying to customers based on their status, which the court undoubtedly would rule, would, would say violates this discrimination law and the discrimination law is fine. Gorsuch basically made the distinction between status and message, right? And you correct me if I'm wrong here. So, so if it's just a standard thing, like I sell hamburgers and I will not sell hamburgers to gay people, then that's wrong. That doesn't violate free speech because the business itself is discriminating on people on the basis of status, not their message. But if you are designing a website, it gets interesting because you're like, all right, you're you're compelling speech, and there's a whole host of examples for why that could be a dicey territory. Was there a determination of fact based on like, is this a template or is this a, a newly created website? Or I guess I know the answer because there wasn't actually a customer, but what's your Right. Sense? I mean, well, th- this is like, I think to me is the perfect example of why this case was so frustrating. And, you know, I said in my piece that I think if everything had happened in the real world, exactly as, you know, Lori Smith and her lawyers laid out, that I probably would have come down that the court got this right. But the fact that we don't have these sort of basic facts is part of what makes it so impossible for them to rule on. So, you know, it's sort of the difference of like, imagine there's a painter who paints 10 paintings every week and says, I am not going to let any same sex couple come in and buy my painting Versus a painter who says, I'm painting portraits of couples and says, you know what, I'm, I, I don't want to paint portraits of same-sex couples because I don't support it from a religious perspective. There'd be a huge difference between the state of Colorado telling this person they have to paint any portrait of any customer who comes in and request support like a couple's portrait versus the state of Colorado saying, well, if you're selling these 10 paintings every week, you have to sell them to everybody or nobody. And that's kind of the distinction in the case is like, if this was a website where she was just designed 10 templates and was allowing people to come use her wedding website template, then, you know, she has to leave it open for everybody. And the state of Colorado actually said that they would not that like that was their presumption that they would not force her to create these unique wedding websites. They said, you know, if this had actually happened, we would not have come after her for this. But the reality is most website designers, especially for wedding websites, what they do is they create templates. They don't just build custom websites for every customer. They have like things you can choose from and those things should be available to everybody. And both from like a moral perspective, I think that should be how it is. I think if somebody is creating something, they can't refuse to sell it to certain people. And from a legal perspective, like Colorado saying, you know, we have much better standing to come after her on the public accommodation law if she's refusing to sell these templates. So Lori Smith and her lawyers just said, oh, well, actually, like we're talking about a theoretical custom website design, like, and they just get to change the case in a way that makes it more winnable for them, which they know is the the advantage that they have, which is why this like hypothetical issue is such a problem. And there are all sorts of like, you know, material facts that the court had to try to suss out. And in every turn in the case where, 
Lori Smith and her lawyers get to choose what the fact pattern of the case is in this hypothetical they're drawing yeah. up. They they get an advantage. They get an edge in the law. And that's why, you know, you need a live dispute. And I should say, I mean, it's it is true that sometimes new laws are passed by Congress and people preemptively challenge them based on what this new law is. But what doesn't happen is a law that's been on the books for like a decade or two, like this public accommodation law is, is sitting there and then somebody invents a dispute to come challenge it, you know, long after it's been well established and been referenced and ruled on in other cases. So there is something about this that is truly unusual and was pretty surprising for me that the court took it as far as it did. Yeah. One point of clarification is you as a business owner can deny your services or your goods for arbitrary reasons. You could be like, I don't like this customer's attitude or whatever. You're allowed to do that. What you're not allowed to do in most places and certainly, and depending on which identities we're talking about, is to deny your services or goods absent a free speech concern like compelled speech or something like that from somebody based on their protected identity, right? That's what's at issue here, right? Which is we have certain protected identities, race, gender, you know, whether somebody's gay or not, right? Like these are these are protected identities in certain places in America and in certain cases, all of America. And that's the thing here is like, I think there are members of the right who don't like those laws. Now, the thing is, it's hard you're hard pressed to see those laws fall like in a broad sense. But I think what they're trying to do is chip away at parts of it, right? Like I can't imagine cases coming up of like somebody, you know, not allowing somebody to sit at a lunch counter in 2023 and denying somebody hamburger based on the fact that they're black. But I think they're going after what they view as and this is how they view it. I wouldn't say that I view it this way, edge cases as they see it and kind of working their way from those edge cases. That seems to be what the strategy here is, like where they think they have the public on their side. Like what you said, right? Which is like, there's a, like depending on which version of facts one wants to accept here, you can get people's heads on and be like, oh yeah, well, if somebody is like a devout this or that, they shouldn't be compelled to say something, right? Like there are, there are facts all over the the opinion and on the briefings and in your sort of what the left is saying was right is saying was like, should a hint do be forced to like write a website saying I love Jesus or something. And it's like, of course, these are these become really complicated. If we want to live in this pluralistic society in America, which I think is what most people want, there's sort of some acceptance of the fact that we have to make space both ways, you know, like we have to respect the religious views of a devout Christian just as much as we have to respect the sexual identity of a gay couple. And when those things come into tension, there aren't like simple black and white answers, but it's really clearly, we just saw it's not that hard to create a case that becomes bulletproof in a certain, you know, in front of a certain group of justices, if we just accept all the invented hypotheticals of, you know, of the fact pattern and, you know, more, I guess more broadly, the issue is, now this ruling's on the book and now lower courts have to look to it in order to figure out their their own disputes that come up and there's just like you said i i'm also very skeptical of the fact that this is going to turn into some restaurant not allowing a black person to come in and sit at the counter but the door is just kind of cracked open you know and that is the thing that i think is a little bit worrisome is you just took a case that didn't actually exist, a dispute that didn't actually exist, 
and you crack the door open for other kinds of discrimination that might be more easily justified in a legal sense in a way that I don't think is good for the country. And, you know, I hope it doesn't turn into that. I, I hope that it just ends with what this ruling was. But there's there's no doubt that somebody somewhere might take a swing at it and and try and see what kind of larger, broader right they can enshrine for themselves that for for much of the public translates into like a real live discrimination happening. And that that part of it is worrisome for me, despite the fact that I do think, again, if this were a totally if everything here was on the up and up and exactly how it happened, I think there's, you know, Lori Smith would have had a compelling free speech case. But it's a really tough one to wrap my head around. And as somebody who has defended, I think, this Supreme Court, this 6-3 majority from a lot of what I view as like hysterics happening on the left sometimes, uh, this was not a case that inspired confidence in me and made me regret a little bit some of those defenses that I've kind of uh, lobbied for them because it's it just, I don't think it should have gone this far, plain and simple. Well, let's pivot and talk about the weather. <laughs> uh, so what is happening right now with the record temperatures across the world. I am somebody like you who believes that climate change is real. And I also generally, like when I see commentary around one particular weather event, like a hurricane or something, and I see people saying, oh, climate change, I have two feelings simultaneously. One is any one weather event or storm or whatever is not indicative of a trend. And then the other part of my brain is, well, a trend is a collection of these things. <laughs> and so it is an important data point. All that said, what's going on with these temperatures right now as you see it? We covered this issue because there was a ton of news and commentary around the fact that basically over the course of three or four days, we had consecutive global average temperatures hitting all-time highs, which all-time goes back to around 1979 when we started tracking this stuff with various satellites and thermometers in the ocean and all these different weather stations across the globe. And the average temperature was about 63.03 or 02 degrees Fahrenheit, which probably doesn't sound that hot to people who live in hot areas, but as a global temperature average is extremely hot. It is um, you know, taking into account every temperature that's happening on Earth everywhere all at once. The data here is preliminary, which I think should be said. I mean, there's so many different data points that are coming in that this stuff gets poured over by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration several times over before they come out and say like, okay, this is final. But the temperatures are very hot. There's this phenomenon happening called a marine heat wave in the North Atlantic, we had, you know, in the United States, I think most people probably heard about Texas and Mexico and other places in the Southwest and that region that were experiencing unbelievable record hot days. And then on top of all that, we have these wildfires that are happening in Canada, which are certainly the product of lots of drought. And that smoke has been coming into major American cities, including the one that I live in, Philadelphia. Today, actually, we are right now on a low air quality alert that's like code orange, which means I'm actually technically not supposed to go outside. Um, 
all of that is pretty apocalyptic and and not great. And I think is indicative of the fact that the world is getting warmer. Um, you know, there's there's a retort here that's common from people who I think are, you know, not even climate change skeptics, but just skeptical of the kind of clickbait headlines that come out whenever there's some big major weather event, which is the earth is hundreds of thousands of years old in relation to human beings. The earth is obviously billions of years old, but we've we've been living as people for hundreds of thousands of years on this planet. And to say that this is the hottest time that humans have ever experienced when we've only been keeping this data for, you know, 40 some odd years is a gross exaggeration and whatever. But the science on climate change is actually pretty good. The historical record of temperatures, we actually have a pretty good idea. There's all sorts of different ways we can study that. And climate scientists are, are, you know, have all sorts of varying certainty around how they view things like temperature trends and climate change. And the idea that the world is getting warmer and that it's getting warmer because we're emitting a lot of greenhouse gases that get trapped in our atmosphere is actually something that we can say with like a really, really high degree of confidence. So I think in that sense, the fears are all warranted and it's a scary thing to be like feeling like we are actually witnessing this thing in real time that a lot of scientists have been warning about for a really long time, which is that if we don't do something to change the way we're living, the planet's going to keep getting warmer and warmer. And certain places we're used to being normal, habitable places are, are not going to be like, say, you know, South Texas, which is seeing 115, 120 degree days over and over and over in a row which is just, you can't really be outside for more than a few minutes in that kind of weather right now. I find this whole climate debate fascinating psychologically because you wrote in your piece, like you had a couple of key takeaways, one of which was doomerism isn't helping. And it's like one of those things that is that is rational, but not emotionally salient in the sense that like in the face of a catastrophe, it's hard to argue with people you know, when I see young activists, for example, doing what on the face of it seems insane things, but then I realize, well, if they're right about things that I seem to, th- that there's a lot of evidence for, there's almost no behavior that's irrational because it's so dangerous what we're doing to this planet that almost any reaction would seem reasonable. And that, you know, screaming at every person around you, like, hey, like, we could all die soon. <laughs> it's like not a crazy thing to say. And I and I'm like, well, what do you do about it? And I and I actually I'm a news junkie like you. I avoid most climate reporting, not because I don't believe in it, but because I believe in it and I read it and it depresses me so much. So undepress me. <laughs> what do, <laughs> you have some you have some interesting parts of your write-up about some positive trends that are happening out there. Yeah. Well, look, first of all, I think it's really important. You know, my my take on doomerism and being anti-doomerism is specific to the science and even the people who are extremely alarmed about the science, the actual scientists who, for whatever it's worth, in the last few years especially, their view has become a little bit more optimistic. That's not to say they're saying like, we're doing everything right and we're going to get out of this. It's There is going to be a huge disruption and there are going to be places on planet Earth right now that are heavily populated and we are used to being habitable that are going to become uninhabitable. I mean, whether that's because sea level rise in cities like Miami in 100 years or whatever, 
or in places in like Sub-Saharan Africa or Death Valley in California or whatever, where it's going to be so consistently hot that it's just not going to be a rational place to live, whether you know that's because of access to water or quality of life or how hard it is to just you know keep all the houses running on air conditioning or whatever it is. I mean, there are going to be real issues that create you know mass migration, food crisis, water crisis. But there's also this take that like we have a the the kind of technological sophistication coming to start to address some of those things and b in a lot of places in the more developed world the energy transition is happening the biggest problem is that we emit a ton of greenhouse gases by you know driving cars and having factories that run on coal and you know all these kinds of things that everybody has heard about in the news for a really long time. And yet in places like the United States, we have reduced our emissions pretty significantly. We saw during COVID a huge drop because, you know, people were just doing fewer things, but we've also seen wind and solar get way cheaper. They've totally taken over in in Europe. We've seen the cost of solar panels plummet globally. We are finding across the earth, whether, you know, some people might view this as a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. We are finding that a lot of the minerals and things that we need for something like batteries and electric vehicles are much more plentiful than we maybe initially expected. You know, these transitions are happening and it was never something that was going to happen overnight. But even like the, the advent of natural gas has been super helpful for the United States and its emissions. Most people who are, you know, sort of feel like I don't want to sacrifice my quality of life for the kind of green climate agenda will reply to something like this and say, well, China is still emitting all this coal and nothing's going to matter until China does something. And there is some truth to that. I mean, on the raw numbers, just the data, like China kind of consumes and emits as much greenhouse gases as many other large countries combined, which is a huge issue. And that's totally true. But it's also true that if we in the developed world, like the United States, with a really wealthy country that's incredibly innovative, can't be at the forefront of figuring this out, then countries like China have no motivation to come up and do it behind us. And so we should do it because we have the means to do it. We have the wealth to do it. We have the innovation to do it. There's a world in which making these transitions is actually a really positive thing for the environment or for the economy and the environment, obviously. And so I definitely feel a little bit more optimistic than I think most people who worry about climate change do, mostly because I think we're seeing right now the positive impacts of so much investment and hard work and innovation and energy that's been put into it. And saying like the world's going to be uninhabitable in 50 years or whatever isn't just untrue. You know, there will be places that are less habitable and much harder to live in. It's also accepting defeat in a way that I think is not just antithetical to the American spirit, not to be a little patriotic, because I know that can offend some people, but it's also antithetical to to the science. I mean, most world-renowned climate scientists who I read and interact with say that we have control over what happens next and believe that we have the means to sort of 
chart our path forward. And, you know, we're, we have an administration that just made some of the largest government funded climate initiatives pass some of the largest government climate initiatives in the history of the United States. And we have infrastructure that's getting rebuilt in a lot of places. And we have the advent of things like electric cars and solar panels and wind farms that are, you know, happening everywhere across the country right now and everywhere across Europe right now. And, you know, I wish we would embrace other things like nuclear energy and things like that, which is a whole other can of worms. But I believe that we're, you know, stepping in the right direction, even if it's not happening as fast as I think it needs to, or many climate scientists want it to. Well, with that, that's a good place to end. Isaac, thank you so much for joining us again. Folks out there, make sure to go to readtangle.com, right? Is that right? Readtangle.com? Yep. Readtangle.com. That's the website. And you can sign up and check out our newsletter for free. Well, thank you very much, everybody. We will be back on Tuesday with a regular episode. I hope you all have a great weekend. See you all later. Bye.